how is your day going so far? Well, it's Monday, and I think you know that I'm one of those people who's always dependent on other people to do stuff because I do what I say I'm going to do, which is like a terrible thing to be. Mm -hmm. So Monday is always like this day where I wonder, will they do what they (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are starting a little late, but I'm glad that we were able to fulfill that if, if slightly late. Yes, you did. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, it's um it is kind of a gray Monday as of this recording. Um mm-hmm. I did sleep in quite late today, which is is unlike me, but um I didn't get up until noon, which I'm not proud of. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm on my second cup of coffee. Okay, uh, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what have you been up to lately? I feel like I haven't seen you for a couple of months. I think the last time I saw you was maybe in December. Yeah, when you came over. Um, God, so much is going on over here. It's a little. I'm a little confused because there's so much going on. So let's <laughs> see. <laughs> so one thing is that me and two of my colleagues who are also my friends, uh, Linda Villarosa and Matt Grimm, Mm-hmm. We're starting an HIV AIDS studies program at CUNY. Mm-hmm. And that's like very exciting because I think it's the first one in the States. There's one in Concordia, of course, that's a very famous program. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, but because it's CUNY, they don't have any money, right? <laughs> so, like, they're doing, no, I mean, like, zero. They have yeah. nothing. So, we're doing this conference on March 19th that we've organized on literally zero. So I just went to all these people who are doing amazing new research on HIV AIDS and I just asked them if they would do it for free and get themselves here for free. And that I couldn't even give them coffee. And they all said yes. Wow, that's great. Yeah, so it's going to be on Monday the 19th at the CUNY Grad Center on 34th and 5th. And it's like, Linda Villarosa, do you know her? I'm not sure that I do. She's like the expert on black people and AIDS in the United States. Mm. And she's, she wrote this incredible series on the front page of the times in 2004 about black women and HIV, where she showed that the mass incarceration of black men was the major contributor to black women getting infected. I mean, it was pretty radical for the New York times. And then about six months ago, she did a cover story on in their magazine. So that's like 14 years later or whatever, mm-hmm. um, showing that the rates of infection of black gay men in the South were higher than any country in the world. So she's a very radical person who gets her work into very mainstream places. And she's giving the keynote. So that's really exciting. And then one of your Canadian colleagues, Alex McClellan, <laughs> you know him, right? I think I do. Yeah, from Montreal. So he's got this, he's coming all the way from Montreal on his own dime, which is amazing. But he's interviewed all these Canadians who were incarcerated under that horrible HIV criminalization law. Right, yeah. About what it's like for them in, in Canadian jails. And he's going to present that. Research. So that's all like the whole thing is very exciting, but it's like we're trying to, we're just trying to 
cohere it without, you know, like if it was Harvard, they can write a check for $10 million. So anyway, so we've been doing that. So that's like the academic side of things. And in fact, today, this very day as we're speaking, the Supreme Court is deciding whether or not our union at CUNY, um, whether whether any public employee unions are going to be able to continue. It's this big draconian thing by Trump. So that's going on right this second. So that's that's my job side of things. And then I have all my crazy projects that never happen you know, uh-huh. every time I see you. So it's like, you know, because they're show business, which is the world's worst business. <laughs> it is. It's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. There's nothing worse mm-hmm. than theater people, let me just say. So, you know, I'm doing this musical with Marianne Faithful. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. You and I have discussed that. Um, and it's like, it's she's amazing. I'm totally inspired by her and we've got all these great songs from her 50-year career and all this stuff and we have we work together beautifully and we have what we want but now we're dependent on her publishing company to make it happen so we're just like sitting here twiddling our thumbs waiting for them to get going Mm. so that's happening and then i have a murder mystery coming out in september called maggie terry it's a novel of murder and intrigue so tomorrow I go see the cover. It's the Feminist Press that's publishing it. Mm. So, yeah, so like all this different stuff all over the place, you know. Yeah. It's like, and then there's like 500, you know, there's more. There's plenty more. I don't want to uh-huh. bore you with all the projects that are <laughs> never going to happen, but there's many of them and they all take <laughs> a lot of work. What about you? What about me? Um, God, what am I doing? I am... Um, I am writing. I just, um, I just did an interview with, uh, my friend and colleague, Robert Yang, who is a professor at NYU. Um, and he makes, uh, he makes games that are like about gay male sexuality, which is very cool because they look like really high tech video games about like shooting people and stuff, but they're about like cottaging or like. BDSM or things like that. So he kind of sneaks them into uh, public perception that way. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I did this really great interview with him where he talks about, uh, you know, his motivations behind that. And then sort of like some of the tensions of of working within this Western North American, like white gay context where like we're really used to seeing kind of like white muscular men as like the face of gay sexuality still. Still, it's so uh, 90s. I know, I know. It's um, it's bizarre, but so I've been doing things like that. Um, just yeah, we're. How does he? Is he get supported NYU for what he's doing? He does. It's really great. They have um, the the department that he works out of. It's called the Game Center, and they actually have some really um, some pretty amazing people there. My friend Naomi Clark. Uh, as well is a professor there. Oh yeah, I know Naomi. Yeah. yeah. Um and she's done some really amazing work um in both in her teaching and in her her practice. Um So yeah, that's it's cool, you know. It's um NYU I guess has like a little bit, you know, a little bit more money than um than a school like CUNY. Um 
But uh, well, there's such an interesting bunch of contradictions at NYU because mm-hmm. they have all this cool faculty, and you can study all this radical stuff while they're like destroying the whole village and Absolutely. colonizing everything. It's very strange. I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, Lisa Dugan, who teaches there, she says it's a real estate company that offers cat classes. <laughs> yes, it's very strange. And there's this tension, I think, that isn't unique to that school between administration and, um, and you know, professors who, and sort of like this sort of underpaid a group of lecturers and, and um temporary professors and jobs like that uh that's it's well, really some of my friends who teach there really feel like the, the kids are have a consumer mentality towards them right like it's very hard to give students bad grades apparently huh. at nyu because their parents complain and things like oh my that. god that's... Or like in my school, you know, the students can be completely fucked over and crushed and they would never, there's no way of them getting back at the teachers because it's, it's more like it's run like the welfare department, you know, it's, the students have no rights in my school. I mean, they have technically have rights, but they have no real functioning culture of rights. Yeah. So it's like the opposite to a fault. Right. It's like that, you know, they may have the same rights in theory, but at a school like NYU, the, you know, students have this sort of that middle class upbringing of like, um, oh, I'm going to push back against this professor. I'm going to like, oh, my parents are going to call and like get you in trouble, um, which is a very odd. Well, they pay kind of... so much money. Right. You know? Right. So I guess they view the teachers, some of them view the teachers as their employees. Yeah. Which is, I guess, technically true. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Have you seen? I had a word. No, go ahead. Have you seen these the ads for CUNY on the train? Oh sure. It's it's kind of just like I don't know if, for people who don't live in New York. It's like they're like oh, this is the greatest institution in like in the entire city, and it's the envy of the world. And even as like you know funding has just been systematically drained out of it. Well, there's a lot of great things about CUNY, but then there's, I mean, just for people who don't understand, it's the public university system of New York City. So there's 23 campuses and 500,000 people are involved. And we have open admissions, which means anyone who has either a high school diploma or a GED is guaranteed a place. But there's a different, so you have this incredible mix of students that's unbelievably great. You know, like it's normal to have like, you know, 10 or 15 nationalities in one class. Mm -hmm. And you can get really incredible teachers. Like my colleagues on Staten Island where I teach, I have Tayumba Jess, who just won the Pulitzer Prize for Mm -hmm. poetry. Patricia Smith, who's like one of the most successful poets in America. Ava Chin, who you probably have seen on those subway ads, who's this Mm -hmm genius nonfiction writer and all these amazing faculty. But the problem is that the schools are totally broke. And so like in my school, we only have a 26% graduation rate. Mm. You know, I mean, the students, the schools defeat the students because we don't have anything that they need. So it's just incredibly frustrating. Like, and also it's ranked. So like some, there's a, 
some of the schools are, are in better shape, like City College, Brooklyn College, Hunter. But my school is in bad shape. And our president recently sent us this note saying that we had a million-dollar deficit last year because we have no endowment, and that the way he was going to address it was by lowering the heat. Oh, my God. So now, like, because he didn't know what else to do. Wow. We're like, I ran out of paper in the middle of the semester last year, and I had to put a thing on Facebook asking people to send checks to my department. And I raised like $2,500 to buy paper because it was dire. Wow. That's like the state of like public public schools, like, um, you know, primary and secondary schools where teachers are having to pay for their own supplies. Oh, yeah. That's what it's like. But on the other hand, I'd rather have the CUNY students because they're so much more interesting. You know, I don't I think that for me, because of my character defects, <laughs> I think I would be less successful teacher if I had like a lot of rich kids in the class, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But the, the sad part is when you have really talented and smart kids, which I have every semester, but you know, it's going to be really hard for them to succeed because even if you can get them into like an MFA program with full funding, which they have to have, uh-huh. even if you get that, when they get there, they can't compete socially because they're not sophisticated. Like they don't have the same cultural references that the other kids have. And they don't really make friends or fit in. I mean, they don't get mentored. I've seen it over and over. Mm. It's just very alienating for them. So just getting them into those programs is not enough. You know, there's a big culture gap. That's well, I just don't know how to bridge it, really. Yeah. So it's really sad. Yeah. You know, because I have smart kids every semester, but they just, they don't know how things work, you know, and that's the key to everything is knowing how things work. That's what power is, really. Mm -hmm. But then you get some, like this year I had this woman, this is interesting, she was an older woman who had been a, um, a high up at a prison near here. I don't uh-huh. want to say which one because I don't want to identify her. Sure. But she had worked in a prison for 20 years and then she, without a BA, so that tells you a lot. And then she retired and came to get a BA. And she was in my classes and like she couldn't praise the other students. It was, it was impossible for her to compliment people. And all I could think was like, wow, all those prisoners who you demoralized for 20 years because you can't be, you know, you can't encourage people. Right. And also how dehumanized she got. Yeah. You know, and I have a lot of cops because it's Staten Island, right? So right. we have a lot of cops and CEOs, correctional officers and all of that. And it's quite interesting being with them in class and how they look at things, you know. It's a trip, actually, but I'm I'm happy to be exposed to it. It's enriched me, you know, at the same time that it's hard. Yeah. You know, like, it's hard, you know, like, cause most of the, a lot of the secretaries and security guards and stuff voted for Trump, right? And the cop kids, their yeah. families voted for Trump. And you ask them, like, why did you vote for him? They're like, I don't like her. That's Hillary, they don't like her. Uh-huh. <laughs> like... Well, you don't vote for people because you like them. You vote for them because of their policies. They're like, I do. You know, so it's a completely different system. They're operating under a completely different system about loyalties and stuff. 
and the fact that they're going to a public school that's paid for by taxes and they're voting for someone who wants to cut taxes, that's not a factor in how they make decisions. Right. So that part is very frustrating, you know. And then, like, when Eric Garner was killed on Staten Island, that was huge, you know. So, yeah. of course, brought it up in my classes. And what was amazing was kids who were from cop families, including I had wives of cops in my classes, whether they were black, Latino, or white, they all supported the police. Like, blue trumped race. And that was like, whoa, I didn't expect that at all. So anyway, it's interesting in there. But I just wish the kids had a better shot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how we got off on this. But. No, it's it's great. I mean, it's frustrating too. Like as someone who did use, like I used to teach at a public university as well. And, you know, yeah, I think. It, oh, which if, one was that? Uh, that was the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so frustrating because you're trying to do this work within this system that seems designed to stymie you at, at every turn and then also like it's frustrating coming in at you know when your freshmen are like 17 18 like after like having gone through so many years of like of public schooling and 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 so many years of being immersed in the culture like how do you deal with that and like how do you introduce different concepts and ideas like that is such a it can be such a frustrating experience it can be really rewarding as well but but it is hard yeah on the other hand like for myself I went to both a private school and then I went to a public school I mean at university in high school I went to a public magnet school but I mean I went to University of Chicago and I did horribly you know, I just couldn't get it. Like, I didn't yeah. understand what they were talking about. And I was so alienated and nothing. I didn't agree with anything anyone said. Then I went to Hunter. And, you know, I told you this before, Audrey Lord was my professor there. Mm. And suddenly I was in an environment where everything I said made sense. <laughs> you know, so it it's not always about the financial stability of the institution. Yeah. It's really about the relationship with the teacher. That's what kind of makes it. Yeah, yeah. So. I, um, I, some of like the best teaching experiences that I had were when I was teaching summer classes, because, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a class that would be taught during the year would have, you know, several hundred students in it and it would be taught in an auditorium where, you know, students don't even know what their professor really looks like. Um, and then I would teach that class in the summer and there would be 20 people in my class and I would, we would just have discussions all the time and it was amazing. Um, but you know, it wasn't something where the money was there to sustain those kinds of smaller classes and like to build those relationships and those like mentoring relationships and and to get students the resources that they needed. Well, what about your teachers? Like, where were you, where did you have good teachers? Well, so I was really lucky um, at the University of Toronto, which is where I did my undergrad. Um, you know, the first couple of years were 
just huge. Like the, you know, the intro classes are always huge. They're like hundreds of people. Uh, I think my intro psych class was as big as my like graduating high school class. Um, and, uh, but then by the time I got into like my third year and I was in this like specialist sociology program, I was basically in seminars, um, because there were so few people in that track. And so it was like really great to get to sort of have these, these close relationships with professors and to really have them encourage you, um, and to sort of have that kind of working relationship with them. Uh, I was what really was grateful. Your major? So I did a double major in um, sociology and political science. Oh, wow. Oh, so your background is social science. That's interesting. Yeah, I kind of moved away from that. Um, but I did, yeah, I did that. And then I did, um, my master's was in sociology as well. Oh, what did you write your paper on? I wrote my thesis on public bathrooms. Um, mm-hmm. It isn't that good. Like looking back, it's it's like not that mm-hmm. that good. But um, you know, it was just about um, those uh, those kinds of spaces and like historically, like how they functioned um, as like sites of of difference and exclusion and stuff. Um, but um, yeah, my grad school experience was like it had its ups and downs. Uh, that that program I think had declined a lot since the seventies. We had uh, years and years ago this guy Howard Backer, who is like I don't know if you are you familiar with him. No, he's like this really famous sociologist who um, wrote really interesting books about like. His, one of his most famous ones is like how people become marijuana smokers. And this was like in the seventies um, or like sixties and seventies. So it's not like today, I guess, but it was all about like, you know, like smoking weed at first is not a pleasurable experience. It's disorienting and weird. And you sort of have to learn socially how to enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he was doing really radical, interesting stuff. And then the department kind of fell apart. And uh, at U of T? Uh, no, at UW. <laughs> Oh, um, what uh, Washington. Oh, okay. Oh, so you went to the States for grad school. Okay. I, I did. Yeah. Part. Yeah. Um, okay. so yeah, I don't know. Social science is, uh, it's weird. Cause in, in Europe, it's always been really radical. And I think that has the influence of Marx still there, but here it was so sort of like, once the government really got involved in funding studies and they were mostly interested in funding statistical work that could be applied to like understanding and kind of controlling populations um it became so narrow and um conservative here but when did you start getting interested in like computers and tech and all of that i guess that was while i was in grad school um and I just was getting really bored and like depressed with the state of my field and sort of moved into more art artistic kinds of stuff um I think especially online because I didn't really have much of a local community so I think that really made sense like to gravitate towards stuff that people were sharing over the internet but But did you take computer courses no not really and I've never actually I don't know that much about computers (laughs) like I when I was doing that kind of like digital media art stuff I um Mm -hmm. I was never very good at the technical stuff so I kind of fudged my way through a lot of it um, 
which is one reason why I don't do it anymore <laughs> because it was like yeah really... but I mean you're so smart and you're oh. just like an autodidact oh. so you just put it all together in this eclectic way probably if you had gone through a program that would have channeled you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's the thing about being untrained people who are untrained are sometimes the most interesting yeah yeah I actually um that kind of reminds me, I just finished um, David Wanarovich's memoir, Close to the Knives. Oh, yeah. Uh, he says I'm disappearing, but not fast enough. Yeah. 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 And, you know, he was sort of this kind of person who was just doing, like, all kinds of things. Um, right. Like, you know, painting and photography and all this stuff. It's It's really wild. Well, he's an old school artist before professionalization. Right. Where he just had all these different influences. Yeah. You know, yeah. I kind of knew him a little bit because we had a friend in common who died, Phil Zwickler. Yeah. So I would see him going in and out of Phil's room. And then he lived right, you know, that movie theater on 11th Street and 2nd Avenue. Have you ever been there? Uh, what's it called? I don't know what it's called now, but like Village Cinema or yeah, something. But yeah, yeah, I know it. So he lived right in there. He lived in that apartment. Oh, right in there. And that when I was a kid, that was a Yiddish theater. Mm. So I went to that building for Yiddish theater. But he he lived right there. So the, I used to see him at this local old fashioned pharmacy called Estros that doesn't exist anymore. But he'd be getting his medicine, and he always looked really sick and like suffering like crazy, like. I remember seeing him and he couldn't sit in the chair. He felt so bad. He was waiting for his meds. It was really sad. But anyway, so, you know, I knew him a little. Yeah. Because we lived in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Now you, but, you mentioned that he was kind of like this old school artist. And that's something that you talked about, like, I think in gentrification of the mind, the idea of like, the impact of the professionalization of writing and, and of art and how that's kind of shifted that landscape. Oh yeah. In so many ways. I mean, the first thing is, you know, well, first of all, to get an MFA, you have to be admitted into the program. Right. Right, But a community, nobody admits you. Yeah. You're just there, you know? So, so the really weird people who get weeded out that way, and the people who are not obedient get weeded out. And then the people who, like, can't afford to go to school or whatever, they're weeded out. Mm-hmm. So it homogenizes already upon entrance. And then you have this kind of group conditioning experience for, like, you're reading books together instead of people reading eclectically, each one with different influences. Mm-hmm. There's the workshop process, which is, like, you know, it can be homogenizing. It depends, but it can be. And so there's just all these kind of channeling mechanisms. And, you know, it's done a lot of harm aesthetically. There's a, lot, there's a certain kind of writing style that's come out of that that I really hate. <laughs> but also, it's like a branding. And then yeah. those people are channeled into certain kinds of support and... It's gross. You know, that's why I do all this kind of guerrilla teaching that I do is to counter that. So I run these groups in my apartment and I have individuals who I mentor and 
I read people's novels and books and give them feedback, like outside of that system. Yeah. Because it's an unfair advantage to a very kind of homogenized type of person and worse, not everyone, of course, but quite a few. It bothers me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's upsetting. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I have a book for sale right now. I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but it's a nonfiction book. But I recently got this rejection that was really fucking annoying. This woman from a very fancy publisher, and she's like a young white straight woman. And, you know, white young white straight women run everything right now. They're, they're the people at the front desk of everything. Like, they're the gatekeepers. They don't have the real big guy power. Uh-huh. But when you when you try to get in through a gate, they are the ones waiting for you. <laughs> and she wrote one of these things like, Sarah's brilliant and her ideas are so blah, 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 blah. She goes, but I wish, this is a quote, I wish she would simplify. Okay, that's a weird thing to say, that someone's brilliant, but you wish they would simplify. Yeah, because if you simplify, it's not brilliant. Yeah. It's simplified. And then she was like, and when, and her criticism of corporate publishing makes me wince. Well, too bad. (laughs) Wincing is good. Yeah. So she rejected it. And I was like, you know, you shouldn't feel, it's bad enough to feel those things, but to to feel entitled enough to say those things is really annoying. You know, they should lie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God! No, but that's you know that's the MSA mentality. Yeah, you know, like if it's familiar, it's good, and if it's unfamiliar, it's bad. Right. Um, Yeah. Something that that I've been meaning to ask you about actually was um, in that in the book um, where you talk about the stuff. One thing that right at the end you talk about like the rates of publishing by lesbian authors or like of books with lesbian content. And uh-huh. do you know, like, what those rates have been like since that book came out? Well, I don't know the numbers, but I can tell you what I observe. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of American novels, not British imports, which is a different story. So, right. like, Sarah Waters, Janet Winterson, Ali Smith, those are all British imports. But yeah. American authors where there's a lesbian protagonist... I have never seen a book like that become a best-selling American book, except for Alison Bechdel, but that's a graphic novel. Right. So, you know, so it still is really, if you are a very ambitious person as a writer, it's still, most of those people who are ambitious do avoid that content because of the, you know, it's a professional kiss of death at a certain level. Yeah. So that hasn't changed really. That's so depressing. I know. I mean, in Canada, it's better. But those books are, you know, there's a lot. The Canadian situation is very different because it's all government subsidized. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's interesting because here, like, it's not about sales. Because these books, you know, they publish books by straight people that don't sell. Yeah. It's about the ick factor of the editors. <laughs> they have a, dis- a personal discomfort factor that 
overrides whether or not the books will sell. It's one of the few things in which money is not the most important issue, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny because I was looking at Susan Sontag the other day. Have you ever looked at her work at all? A little bit, yeah. You know, I'm I'm interested in her because, you know, we have the same initials. (laughs) And she also was a Jewish lesbian. You have so much in common. Farming, yes, in certain ways. I mean, she worked in many different forms, like Mm -hmm. I do and all that. But she never wrote about that part of herself. Yeah. And in a way, that was very smart. Now, because she wanted their things. (laughs) I have to ask, maybe I've asked you this before, Mm -hmm. but there's a character in... um... Oh, it's not based on her. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) No, Muriel K. Starr is this character at the end of, like, Black Bohemia, right? Uh-huh, who is yep. this lesbian who closets her book, and the book becomes a bestseller. Right. And this weird guy named Larry Mass, who actually was one of the very first people to ever write about AIDS. So he's actually really important. He was a doctor uh-huh. who wrote for the New York Native. But he's got a chip on his shoulder. Uh-huh. Anyway, he became convinced that that oh, was his yeah. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading about that, actually. <laughs> well, years ago, like 20 years ago, he wrote something in some gay paper making that claim. And I called him and I was like, not only is it tr- not true, I think she was still alive at the time. Not only is this not true, but saying that I'm doing that is going to hurt me. And yeah. it's not even true. Right. Okay, so he decided that I was lying <laughs> and that it really was true. <laughs> And he's been saying it for 20 years. Oh, so my then God. These people wrote a biography of her. And they said that in the book. Oh, my God. And I told them, and I was like, this is not true. And then John <laughs> Leonard, who was the TV critic for the New York Times, he wrote it. He wrote it in the New York Times. Oh, my God. And I wrote this letter to the New York Times saying, yeah. like, it's not true. And there's plenty of other people that this could be. Yeah. Oh, you my know. God. I'm I'm looking at the New York Times letter that you sent that is just like, it's oh, not. Yeah. It could be a, a, like a, a million other people. <laughs> right. I'm not going to say who it is because the person who it is has a lot of power and is about to get more. Oh. This is the weird thing when you live long enough, like yeah. really jerky people end up with a lot of power. And you just like, you're like, oh, my God, that person just got all this power, that horrible person. You know, so I can't say who it is, but yeah, I, know, I did write that person a letter. Wow. Um, at the time. And I said, listen, da 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 da. And she never answered it, but she did tell a mutual friend of ours, what is she, why is she complaining? I needed to buy a house. That was her <laughs> justification. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. Anyway. Apparently, you can't win those battles, which I didn't realize when I was younger. But making like moral arguments apparently doesn't change people. Oh God, that's so depressing. I know. (sighs) But anyway, there's a whole new generation of young women of color who are openly queer, Mm -hmm. who are writing books, novels, like their first novels or memoirs or whatever, and their books are good and they're doing well, but, they, you know, they, nothing has broken out into, like, a big bestseller or something right, like that. Right, right. But we'll see how they how they evolve and if they stick with that content. Oh, yeah. 
it is tough, you know, if like, <laughs> I think, you know, needing to buy a house, needing to buy a house is like on the extreme end of things. But for, for people who are trying to make a go of writing, um, trying like being faced with that choice of like, do I want to sell a book or not? It's like, yeah, but there's a fundamental flaw in that thinking, because if you want your writing to buy you a house, you're going to be a completely different writer. Right. And if yeah. you're willing to have a job and let that take care of you, and then yeah. you can write what you think is best. Right. You know, but people who want their, their work to carry them financially, they're compromised from the beginning. Yeah. You know, I, no, I, think, yeah. I always tell people, get a job you can live with. Yeah. And then you can write whatever you want, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, um, you know, I'm very lucky to have steady writing work right now, which is, um, you know, I'm not, it's not groundbreaking. Like I'm not, um, writing like earth chattering stuff. Um, but it is, I have an editor who is really great, who I can work with and it's a regular thing and, um, it pays mm -hmm. my rent. Uh, which is very low because I share with a few other people, <laughs> but, uh, and then, you know, in my off time, I, I can write, um, other stuff that isn't about. But what, what is your goal artistically for your writing? Right now I, well, I've been kind of just swamped for the past couple of months and getting some personal stuff in order. And so I haven't really had a lot of time, but, um, I think starting in March, I'm going to be working on, um, on a book. Uh, I don't know. I've just been really, in, I've been reading a lot of, I, I don't know. I've been reading, you know, Wanarovich. I've been reading some more Eileen Miles. Um, and I don't know, I don't feel like I can write a novel that is sort of like a traditional kind of thing. I just, because it's a failing on my part, like maybe if I, if I put more work into it, but, um, I, yeah, I've been sort of like just kicking around some work. Um, and this, I'm describing this so badly. <laughs> I sound like I have no idea what I'm doing and, and in ways I don't, but, um, I guess, yeah, I would like to be writing work that is fiction ish, uh, fiction, like slash memoir. Like Eileen has kind of this way of, of writing, uh yeah quote, like novels that are like starring a character named Eileen Miles um and I don't necessarily want to go that far but um but yeah there is stuff well, that I, I want to write about like in that that kind of longer form I think like my favorite book of hers is Inferno I mm -hmm. think it's incredible I love that book but the thing was with doing that you know, and that's an old technique yeah. is that these people pioneered it I mean Eileen's in her so I'm 59, so she's like 66 or something like that. So, you know, this is a pioneer. This is Frank O'Hara was her influence because yeah. he did that, right? So she's influenced by the New York school. But it's not a new technique now. Yeah. And I am seeing a lot of younger people imitating her. And I think it's a mistake because mm. I think people have to find a formal invention that's actually organic to their own generational experience. Otherwise yeah. it's derivative. And that's the, that's the word we all want to avoid, right? Right. Derivative is the bad thing, you know, but there's like collage writers. I mean, 
There's a lot of ways of representing your emotional life and your experiences formally that are not making yourself the only protagonist because there's a limitation to that also. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's a poet's thing. It's a poet's novel. Like if you read Push by Sapphire, she was a poet. Did you ever Uh read that book? I haven't, no. Okay, so, you know, she was a poet first, and then she wrote this book that was, you know, pioneering and groundbreaking for lots of people. But what's interesting in the book is that the I character, the the character based on her, is the only really developed character in the whole book. Because Mm. she's got that poet's eye where other people aren't real. But I think that... (laughs) No, that's what poets do. I mean, that's like the language poets. You know them? The language Mm -hmm, poets? mm -hmm. Their whole thing was to get out of that. Right. To get out yeah. of the eye, you know, and they, they did like surgically, like they like hacked away the eye. But like a novel, I think like a novel is like a commitment to the idea that other people are real mm. and all the characters have to be real. Yeah, That's my view. And I don't mean real realism. I mean that anyone who is that person would have to look at it and see something human that they identify with. So although there is a form of these novels where only the protagonist is fully developed, I think it's an old form. Yeah. You know? And there's probably ways of bringing in multiple perspectives that haven't been tried yet. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe collaborating with other people or I don't, I don't know. Like, did, you ever, did you ever read um, Visions of Cody by Jack Kerouac? No. It's really kind of, I think it's like his best book, but it's him and Neil Cassidy okay. and they, they tape record themselves talking and then he just reproduces the transcripts. You know, he'd never edited anything, Yeah. but it's a way of getting somebody else's point of view in there equal to yours. Right. You know? So anyway, that's all. I just think there's a lot more that can be done. Yeah. Well, I mean, the kind of multiple perspective thing, I, um, so I published a poetry book last year by this this press called uh, Tiger Bee, um, and it was with Nina Polari, who is another poet. It was like a split split book, but our work sort of we ended up writing kind of a, similar things, um, but from pretty different perspectives. Um, and so that was like a really great experience for me. And I don't think I am right. I haven't written poetry in a while just because I haven't been reading it, and I feel like I can't really. Um, write poetry without keeping up with it. Um, but something like that, I think, is is a really interesting idea, and I'm not really sure how that works in fiction. Um, in terms of like the logistics of it, but I do really like that idea of collaborating that closely with someone. Yeah, I cannot think of a collaborative novel. I'm sure they exist, but right now I can't think of one. But it's a good idea mm-hmm. if people are really can listen to each other. But there's this really cool novel by Carol Anshaw. Uh, it's called Aquamarine. It's one of the, my favorite lesbian novels. But it's this girl who has this weird experience when she's 16. And then the rest of the book is divided into three parts. And it's three, they're all set on the same day. And it's three different ways her life could have gone. And it's really interesting because some things about her are the same no matter how her life went. Uh-huh. And other things are completely different. Like it's profound. Mm. I really wanted to make a play out of it. Like I wrote a stage adaptation that was really good because the formal problems are so interesting. 
and she agreed to it. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, I got this letter from her agent saying that she didn't want me to do it, and she would never tell me why. And it's been like 20 years. Huh. And every once in a while, I sent her an email saying like, hi, and she never answered. So I did something wrong, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> but I still think it's, it would make a great play. Yeah. But anyway, it's you know, so that's a really interesting. And then there's that Robbie Amadeen book that I love, you mm -hmm. know, I the Divine. Mm -hmm. You read that? I haven't read it. I'm familiar with him, though. So he's this Lebanese gay writer who's openly HIV positive. He's an incredible writer. Mm -hmm. And this book is about this Lebanese woman named Sarah who wants to write a novel about her life, but she doesn't know how to write it. So every chapter is a different first chapter of how she could start the book. Oh. So she tries entering the story from like all different places in her life and all different styles. One time she tries it in French. I don't know. It's just all these different points of entry. And by the end, you know her in this deep way that you could never know her if it was just a conventional novel. Right. It's a really smart, formal idea that just goes really deep. So I love books like that. Yeah. What have you read lately that you've liked? Um, well, I just finished. Yeah, I just finished that, that memoir, which I did really enjoy. Um, I let me see what else. Um, I did just finish um, "Cool for You," uh, which is that other oh, yeah. Miles one. Good one. Um, let me. You know, I've been reading. Actually, um, I don't read a lot of comics or graphic novels, but um, I read a couple of books by this this Japanese author named Kyoko Okazaki, who is this really interesting, you know, she, she wrote them and illustrated them. Um, and they're all about women in kind of like precarious positions. So like the first one um, that I read, Helter Skelter, is about this woman who's, um, who's a model um, who is sort of aging out of, of stardom. Um, and whose body is actually falling apart because of all of these like weird treatments that she's had um, and just sort of her psychological descent into like realizing that she's just basically been churned up by the system and is going to be discarded um, and how she Aww. deals with that. Um, and then the other one is called Pink. Sorry? Wait, why is it called Helter Skelter? Hel why is it called Helter Skelter? Um Yeah. I forget, actually. Well, does uh, it refer to Manson or does it refer to the Beatles? I think it's more referring to the Beatles. Um, I actually didn't know about the Manson thing until I read that book and I was like looking up the, the term, um, which is completely wild um, and bizarre. But um, Do you know Gwen Turner? Do you know who that is? Guinevere Turner? No, no. So she's this really talented, kind of under the radar, another lesbian artist. But she she made um, Go Fish with Rose Trochet years ago. And then she wrote the movie American Psycho, okay. which she appears in. Anyway, she just wrote a movie about the Manson girl. <laughs> oh, That's going to be made I... by yeah, who did um, I Shot Andy Warhol. Huh. So it's going to be really good. Yeah, I'm very excited because she grew up in a cult herself, like a hippie right, cult. Right, right. So she had a lot of empathy for those women. Yeah. 
Huh. There's like the specter of these kind of like women who went wrong, like who did the like bad girls who really, really fucked up and destroyed other people's lives and their own lives. And then you watch them languish in prison forever. Like the entirety of my life, I have watched these girls languish in prison. Yeah. It's strange, you know, fate. I mean, obviously they had psychotic episodes or whatever, and they were all strung out and everything. And this guy was controlling them, but they were like, they went over the edge, but you know, a lot of things could have gone wrong in a lot of our lives. Maybe not that, but I could have, bad things could have happened and I'm just lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Drug busts and stuff that could have happened that didn't happen and would have made all the difference. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's kind of like, did you ever read um, Sylvia Plath's novel, The Bell Jar? No. Strangely, I have not actually read it. Oh, you would love it. It's so wild. It's just like this woman artist who just doesn't know how to. I mean, it's just an incredible book. But, yeah, you know, like the specter of those people, like all these women artists who committed suicide and everything. And, you know, it always hangs over you like that. it's out there and then you have to, you know, it's, have to, it's a fate you have to resist, but it's, it's just like those girls. It's like people who take that turn that we don't want to take. It's anyway, it's just tempting. All of yeah, that. no, it, it is. It's like this, it is this sort of thing that is this presence that is always there and like is kind of alluring and fascinating and also yeah, I mean, I think the challenge is to sort of be able to recognize how close you you can come to that um, just by some quirk of circumstance. Yeah, that you have to have limits and you have to have breaks. Yeah. Even though you want the B-R-A-K-E-S, not the other. <laughs> you know, even if you don't want them, you have to have them or things can get crazy if you're not living a structured life. Yeah. There was this girl in this neighborhood whose name was, um, shit, what was her name? Uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, she was like a drug dealing lesbian in this neighborhood who was always filthy. And she would go around on a skateboard and stuff. And she was a writer. And um, she, I used to see her all the time at the bookstore. And she always hated everybody and thought everyone was a phony and all this stuff. And then one day she was murdered. And because she used to sell Coke out of her apartment, which is just a few blocks from my house. Mm-hmm. And these people, like, they tied her up with, um, you know, tape, gaffer's tape over her mouth. And they locked her in a trunk. And that's how she died. Anyway, uh, so, you know, and then she just, just, you know, that was over. But now this girl called me. It's now been like probably, I don't know, 25 years or something since this happened. That she wants to sort of resurrect her. Like she wants to write about her. And I was like, why? There's Mm -hmm. nothing romantic there. You know, this girl was, she was, she made all the wrong turns. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's like, why do you want to resurrect that? There's all these great people who, who, you know tried to survive and help other people survive and right. resurrect them. Yeah. People do things for their own reasons, but 
There's, a, there's, a, there's like a stupid bravado, I guess is what I'm talking about. There's real bravado and then there's mm-hmm. like stupid bravado. Right, yeah. 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 Like, I remember like somebody, I want to say it was Eileen, but it may not be. So maybe I shouldn't attribute it to her. But I remember somebody once saying, everyone does drugs and then... Most people stop, but some people don't stop. And then most of those people go to program and then somebody dies and then someone never stops doing drugs. And I think that that's true, like for most groups of young people, but except the person who dies, sometimes they get romanticized. Right. Because it's, it's a stupid death and it's tragic. But maybe it's the person who like... Like Eileen, who went to program, who was actually the more heroic one. Yeah. There's a sameness and a repetition in that choice that is actually, you know, it's less, it's less swashbuckling, but Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, anyway, I don't know how we got onto that, but. Well, we do, this is basically the show, um, but we do one little segment at the end. Um, and that segment is called Get Wrecked, Get Wrecked. which is mm-hmm. an odd name for a segment where we just recommend things to people. Um, and that can be basically anything. Um, it could be, you know, a piece of media, but it, it could also be a practice or a place or, or something to get involved with. Um, so I leave it up to you as to whether you would like to go first oh. or... I have something I want to recommend. Oh, please. This is a new, it's a new novel. It's called Heartland by Anna Simo. That's A-N-A-S-I-M-O. Okay. Anna Simo is like a total legend around here. She, she's probably in her late sixties now. I think she was, she's a Cuban lesbian who started out as a concert pianist, was part of the Cuban Revolution, got thrown out because she was gay, went to Paris, studied with Roland Barthes, came back to New York, started this Lesbians of Color Theater that ran for 10 years at 10 Bleecker Street. Then she was a playwright. She studied with Irene Forness. She started something called Dyke TV, which was a lesbian TV thing. She made an incredible movie called How to Kill Her. She's traveled the world, and this is her first novel. She really influenced my writing a lot. She's an incredible writer. She's an amazing figure. And this is a high, this is really good experimental writing of someone who really knows what they're doing. And it was published by Reckless Press. And she's doing an event at the Bureau soon. But anyway, that's my recommendation. Heartland by Anna Simo. Great. Well, I'm going to recommend a book also. I am going to recommend the the Wanarovich memoir. Um, you know, I am someone who is pretty deeply obsessed, I would say, with that period of New York history um, and that mm-hmm. sort of set of communities um, in New York history. But I think that even if you are someone who is not as deeply compelled and fascinated and horrified by that period as I am, um, <laughs> I think his prose is such that it uh, is is a very compelling book. I actually listened to it on an audiobook because I started getting back into that again. Um, oh, wow. And, who read it? Uh, it was this this actor named Jay Asang who 
I guess was on the new Twin Peaks, but I don't really know much about him. <laughs> but he Ooh. he he was a good reader. Um, but uh, yeah, or you know, there's just like the physical book as well. Um, and I'm not really sure. Like I've I listened to audiobooks a few years ago, and I guess I am getting back into them again because there are certain times when I would like to be reading, but I can't actually have a book. And I'm not really sure whether it is the same kind of experience. I don't think it really is. Um, I don't think it's worse necessarily, but it, it is different somehow. Do you, Have you ever listened to them? You know, but I've listened to tapes of writers. Like, I listened to Jean Genet. Have you ever heard his voice? No, but I've read his work. He had a really faggy voice and he had a lisp. <laughs> And then I listened to Gertrude Stein. Uh-huh. She had a tiny little voice like that. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> that's so funny when you have read someone's work and, and they have this sort of towering or threatening image. Uh, and then you, you hear them and it's just so different. <laughs> Well, like Kathy Acker, and thank you for agreeing to be in the reading of her, doing this marathon reading that you are part of on April 8th of her book, um, Blood and Guts in High School. But when only when I heard her read live did I understand how to read her. Mm. Because when she read the work, she put in a certain kind of punctuation that isn't in the text itself. And once I heard it, then I understood what she was doing, and I could read her books more easily. So it'll be interesting to listen to 70 different writers, like, right. interpreting that great book. Yeah. And also, Blood and Guts in High School is so not of this moment. Like, there's so much in there that people w- would be offended by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, by most, so, most of her work, I think, is... Uh, uh, everything, uh, on, a, on every level, on yeah. the level of sexual abuse imagery, racial imagery, everything. So I'm really interested to see how people handle it for six hours. It's so funny because the content of, you know, I, I don't think she's unique in this in that um, she is this kind of pioneering figure whose impact is just, you know, impossible to overstate on, on the ways that people right. think about their lives and their work. And they don't realize that necessarily. But then if right, people were to encounter this, the, it, the original work, I think this is true of some activists and some other writers from that period, too. Like if people were to actually encounter them, um, they would be mortified. Well, because everything is so censored now. Right. Yeah. And some, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's some of, you know, being aware and having consciousness is very important and that that informs our writing now is good. But the controlling people's words, you know, that's bad and you can't make art that way. Right. You know, and I, you know, something that I have seen and worry about is the ways that we seem to be entering this period of queer people doing the work of straight censors of kind of policing each other's work and, and, uh, and lives in this way that is really upsetting. And I think that you can see in the reaction to things like uh, park stings in Toronto um, and also just in some artistic work. In what in Toronto? Did you oh, the, the park stings, um, like the public oh, sex yeah. stings. Well, the thing, the Zoe Whithall piece, did you follow that? No, no. What was that about? 
Well, you know, this just to translate all this, to translate Canadian for Americans. <laughs> so this guy named Stephen Galloway at this place at University of British Columbia was accused of sexual harassment. And I guess he's a big shot in Canada. No one here has ever heard of him. But he had a lot of powerful friends, including Margaret Atwood, who everyone here has heard of. And they wrote this letter defending him. So Zoe and some, so she's a, a Canadian queer novelist in Toronto who's had quite a bit of success. Like she was nominated for the Giller Prize. I mean, Canadians have more prizes than they have books, but <laughs> the Giller is a really important prize and she's a really good writer. Anyway, so she wrote this letter. See, they call it can lit just for Americans. That means Canadian lit. So she wrote this letter about like, what is wrong with can lit that the big shots are all defending the guy and they're not coming, you know, uh, you know, and, and talking about the, the, the women. And she published it in the Walrus, which is this like left leaning Canadian magazine. Anyway, after it was published, it got pulled because Atwood and Galloway were doing some kind of legal threats behind the scenes. Mm. And she had to completely rewrite it. And then they republished it completely rewritten. And then this other woman in Canlet like did screenshots and compared the two versions and it was so censored. And you could tell that Zoe was really afraid of lawsuits. And you're like, these are writers. Like they are not supposed to be threatening people with legal stuff. Right. Because they said an opinion that they don't like. Like that's not what writers are supposed to be doing. You know, we're supposed to be defending people's rights to say things that are challenging or uncomfortable. So that was really scandalous. But it was interesting because when I posted the this woman's analysis of the two versions on Facebook, no one from Canada was a you know, they're too afraid to even comment huh. because I guess Margaret Atwood is like a, an industry. Absolutely. She, I guess she has so much power or something. Yeah. Huh. But anyway, yeah, some interesting things going on in Canada now, like all these people who have killed indigenous people are getting away with it. Mm-hmm. And then this guy who killed all these queer men of color for 10 years and nobody cared and then he killed a white person and then suddenly they caught him yeah i mean there's some stuff coming going down that's you know long buried hypocrisies that are coming to the surface here of course we no longer have buried our hypocrisies (laughs) we're wearing our hypocrisies on our sleeves it's really remarkable what can we say about what's going on here? I just hope, you know, I live on 9th Street and Kushner owns a bunch of buildings on my block. Oh, God. And he's a horrible landlord. Like, he pushes out old people and stuff like that. We hate God. him. I can't wait for him to be led away in handcuffs. That is, <laughs> I am so looking forward to that day. Anyway. Well, this has been... So great. I'm glad that we were able to get you on. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really like talking to you and it was fun. Me too. Um, you know, I'm sure people already know, but if they want to to follow you anywhere online, um, where can they do that? Probably the best place is Facebook. Oh, I just remember the name of that woman who the dealer writer, her name was Sorel, S O R E L. Oh. And her book was called Sorel in Love. 
And it's one of those kind of transgressive novels of the 80s, but mm. she did go down a dream. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to say her name. Well, thank you, Merritt. Yeah, you thank soon. you, Sarah. I will talk to you later. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Bye. Woodland Secrets is hosted by Merritt Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co slash support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co slash messages. You can help people find out about the show, please mention us on Twitter. We're at Woodland Podcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.